Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Grace, for helping us within the music today. I just have to say in that, pa that passage in Colossians, uh, there's just that incredible statement of, of, of the richness of who Christ is. All things created by him and for him. What a powerful text on who he is. But the text before us, as we're continuing on our way through the Gospel of John, we are, have been seeing that our Lord there in, in John chapter 10, he's, he's in the uh, portico, Solomon's portico, which is the easternmost section of the Temple Mount. And that's often where a place where rabbis would teach. And frankly, where he was was not very far at all from where the Sanhedrin met. And as he uh, was there teaching, it was right in the neighborhood of, of the very leaders who were so opposed to him. And we see that coming to a close in his departure from Jerusalem. So this is around the time of, this is at the time of Hanukkah. And so we'd say late, middle, late December uh, is, is the time frame. But let's hear our text. In well, begin in, we finished on verse 31 of chapter 10 last time. But I want to pick up there again to help us see the fullest context. John chapter 10, 31 through 42. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the, the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do, do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where Jordan was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. So the scene picks up with the, the Jewish leaders uh, when it says the Jews, throughout John, that means uh, the leaders of the Jews, not all Jewish people, but the leadership of the Jews, um, and in particular the Pharisees and Sadducees, they pick up stones to stone him. He has been saying that God is his father, and he then also made that statement that, that, he, is, that he and the father are one. And actually that statement in verse 31 is a, uh, when they picked up the stones, that's their response they, they, they understood, as he'll get, go on and say, he was claiming deity. And so they pick up stones to stone him. Uh, that word, they picked up stones, has the idea uh, of, uh, kind of it's, it's more than just grabbing a stone. It usually has the idea of picking up and carrying a heavier load. And so maybe that means the stones were especially heavy, but the temple was under construction for decades some of you have had remodeling projects and know what that's like. But literally, it was decades. And so there was construction material around, but, but the, that Solomon's colonnade, portico, stoa, however you want to describe it, that was the oldest region and probably not much going on there. 
So this word picked up stones may mean they went and gathered stones. Um, I don't know if they would have had uh, wheelbarrows, but you can kind of get that picture. Of they, were, they were bringing, they were getting ready for having him just killing the Lord through stoning. The biblical law set up that as a, as a, as a way of execution, but that's really not what they're doing because they're under Roman authority. They don't have the power to execute. So this is more of a, of a, of a, a spontaneous crowd to attack and lynch the Lord, if you will. And so as they're, they're gathering those stones, you know, what would the first response be? Duck. <laughs> but notice he stands strong and he just asks them a question. Many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And so he's, notice he is, he's going to try and move attention away from the words to the works. Okay, because the works are incontrovertible, uncontestable, undeniable expression of who he is. And they may not like his words. And they're going to accuse him of blasphemy. But he's going to say, well, then look at my works. And so, so he's saying, he asks, puts it in form of a question. Many good works I've shown you from my father. Which of those good works do you, for which of those good works do you stone me? The term, by the way, good, there's, in Greek, there are two different words for good. This one has the idea of that which is attractive, that which is noble. In other words, um, he not only showed, he could have used an idea that expressed which of my wonders, which of my power works. But he's emphasizing the goodness of the works in terms of how noble they were. Healing a man born blind, the sort of man that was ignored in their culture. He's just a beggar now, he's worthless he gave him sight. Now, when John tells us, and, and, and it kind of frustrates me, at the end of the book, there are more miracles that Jesus did and more things he said than, I mean, there's not enough ink to write it all down. To which I want to say, John, but you could add a few more pages. <laughs> a list? But in other words, and, and remember back in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he said, no one could do the works you do unless he be from God. So Jesus was doing things that were the talk. Uh, this wasn't like your typical rabbi who came and taught and, and went away. He was doing things that were the talk of the town and, and, were, and, and, and were points of discussion. So when he says, I've done many good works, they don't say, no, you haven't. They don't say, like what? Those good works were an embarrassment. You know, healing of the lame, healing of the blind, healing of lepers. One work after another, works of mercy and kindness and compassion. And notice he says, works from the Father. He keeps emphasizing in his ministry, I am here sent by my Father, delegated by my Father. When, you, when you're arguing with me, you're arguing with my Father. And so... He's, he's, he says then, so which, which of those works, and literally it's which one of those works, what he's basically saying is, there's a catalog of works that I've done. You know them. Point to one miracle that's immoral, that is unrighteous, that is wrong. Point to one work that I've done that's worthy of criticism. Now, they did criticize because uh, he heals a man on, on the Sabbath. 
And of course, Jesus talks about that in a variety of ways. But one of the answers he gives in another context is, so if your ox falls in a, in a pit on the Sabbath, you all agree, even though it's the Sabbath, it's right to pull an ox out of the pit. If it's right to pull an ox out of the pit, how can it not be right to pull a man out of darkness? Um, and, and so, but we won't go over that kind of territory again. But, but his point is, show me one thing I've done that's, that's bad. And so in verse 33, they answer him and saying, for a good work, we do not stone you. By the way, they make it clear. Yes, we're going to stone you. But for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So they, they make it clear, we're not stoning you for any of your miracles. And again, remember, that was an embarrassment right there. The Pharisees believed that God could do miracles and answer prayer and things like that. The Sadducees didn't even believe in miracles. So that was a constant embarrassment to them. That everybody's talking about. Uh, the Sadducees were, most of the priests were Sadducees. And, and yet, so if someone was healed of leprosy, they had to go to the temple and have the priest declare them healed. That was embarrassing because the Sadducee priest doesn't believe in healing. And here he is. But, but they say, we're not, we're not upset. We can't criticize your works. But we're criticizing you for blasphemy. And that, that word can have the idea of, of slander, of, of speaking ill of God because you, being a man, Make yourself God. Now, again, I think that's so important. Many today, 2,000 years later, look at the claims of Jesus and say, he never claimed to be God. Those who were there, those who lived in the context, they knew the language, they knew the culture, they knew the context, said, he's claiming to be God. The most recent one, and just right before our passage in chapter 10 verse 30, I and my father are one. And again, I didn't want to get too much into the grammar, but he's making, he's, he's making a very powerful statement. I and my father, two distinct persons, are one. And, the, and that word one is in, in the neuter, and it has the idea of a, a one essence. That's, that's the Trinity. Two persons, one essence. There are three persons in the Trinity, but the, it's one God, one essence of God. But they understood that. He wasn't just saying, you know, I'm, I'm on the same page as God. A lot of people th- saying, Jesus is saying that. No, no. He's claiming to be God. To me, probably the most powerful statement is in, in John chapter 8, verse 58. When, when they said, you know, are you greater than Abraham and this sort of thing. And Jesus said to them in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. Abraham was 2,000 years before, and I like that he doesn't even say before Abraham was, I was. I am. Two things that means I'm, et- I'm eternally present before Abraham. And of course, the word I am is the very name of God. When Moses was asked, who shall I say sent me? Tell them, I am sent you. Jesus is claiming to be Jehovah, Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am. They get it. And so when they're saying, you claim to be God, um, they understand that. Again, later on, various uh, critics of the Bible, 
cults will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. The people around him understood the claim. And, and they, they knew what he was saying. The problem is, it's not that they didn't understand. It's they refused to believe. And that's where Jesus kept putting, okay, he's going to say, if you don't accept my words, look at, my, look at what I do. But they are hardened in their unbelief. They will not believe. Sometimes maybe you talk with someone, talk to them about Christ and the claims of Christ, and you'll say, I can't believe that. What they really mean is, I won't believe that. It's a, it's a decision of the will. I remember when I was a philosophy, uh, I was a brand new Christian and took a history of philosophy class. I'm not sure that was the best timing. Uh, but I, and I remember as I think about it, one of my uh, friends, uh, he, uh, he, was a, a, he was a truck driver, and in his off time, he, he took classes up at the college, but he, he loved studying philosophy and loved Francis Schaeffer. And so whenever I had an issue, I'd go running to Ron and say, um, Ron, here's what he said in class. And he'd give me just enough information to go back in there and fight another round. And so, but anyway, when my, my teacher, when his favorite philosopher was Bertrand Russell. And here's a statement from uh, um, Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. He said, Bertrand Russell was asked what he would say if he died and found himself confronted by God. I can't tell you how often I heard about this from that professor. Demand, and, if, and if God should demand him to know why Russell had not believed on him. Quote, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence was Russell's reply. How often, <laughs> again, that was the favorite quote from that teacher. And I think the way he expressed it is, sir, he would point God in the, in the face and say, sir, you haven't given us enough evidence. And I can hear the thunderclap now. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't think he would do that <laughs> when he's actually before God and in, the, in his glory. And, and he can, but, but the point was, Bertrand Russell was saying, you didn't give us enough evidence. Just walk outside and look at the trees. Look at, look at the... How can you see this and say there is not a designer who did this? Look at the life of Jesus Christ. Look at the evidence. But, but Bertrand Russell says, sir, you didn't give us enough evidence. As if he's going to say, God, you didn't meet my expectations. It doesn't work that way. But what is, that is, is that's that hardened unbelief that believes that they can hold God accountable and demand of God. You will behave you will submit to my standards instead of saying, you're the sovereign God, I, stay, I submit to you. So we see these religious leaders are saying of Jesus, we will not accept because of what you say. Well, then Jesus answers their charge in verses 34 to 38. Starting verse 34, Jesus answered them and says, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? I should start with that word law. Uh, there's, the Jews refer to that in the Hebrew, they, they use the word Torah. Uh, and that basically means it, re revelation or instruction. Sometimes the books of Moses are called the Torah. Sometimes all the Old Testament is called the Torah. Sometimes all the Old Testament and the rabbinic traditions are called the Torah. But basically he's talking about here, it's written in your Torah. So he's talking about your Old Testament. He's saying, it's written in your Bible. 
I said, you are gods. That's an odd statement. Um, but he's, what he's doing is, is he's quoting from Psalm 82. And I'm going to take a minute and read it to you. You could follow along if you like. But Psalm 82. And, but, but notice, um, he didn't say, pull out your iPhone, open up your Bible app, and find Psalm 82. They knew the scriptures. You know, they would, they, they, he could just say this verse and they knew the psalm. But here's what it says. In Psalm 82, it's eight verses. I'll read all eight. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, small g. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, God speaking, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Verse 1, God, God, and it's the same word, Elohim, every time he refers God's here, God stands in the congregation of the mighty, and he judges among the gods. My English translation is small g, but it's the same Hebrew word. In other words, God applies the term God to human leaders. Why does he do that? He does it um, because the word God means powerful. And they had delegated power. They, they were God's representatives among God's people. And what he's saying is, here, I've, I've given you authority, as you will, of, uh, of God. You're my representatives, and you're... You're being unjust. You're taking advantage of people. You're not, you're not doing my works. And so verse 6 is what Jesus is quoting. I said, you are gods among all the children most high. So God is saying, he's holding these judges, these leaders, and saying, he's calling them gods. Now that's not to say that they're divine beings as Jesus is. But they rep- they're representatives of God. They're dispensing his judgment. They speak for God. Now, you're probably doing what I'm doing as, as I read that. Your, your mind is, 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 is quickly thinking back to Moses when, when God spoke to Moses in Exodus, right? You were thinking of Exodus 4, right? Maybe not. Let me help you. Exodus 4, verses 15 and 16. Remember, God says to uh, Moses... You know, go and speak to Pharaoh. And, and Moses starts giving every excuse in the book as to why he shouldn't do it. Who am I? I'm nothing. He even says, you know, I, I, I have a speech impediment. I can't do it. And finally, he, he uses the noble expression, Lord, here I am. Send Aaron. <laughs> you know, send my brother. He's, he's well spoken. Um. And here's what we said. God says, now you shall, speaking to Moses about Aaron, now you shall speak to him. Moses shall put, speak to uh, Aaron and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what to, you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people and he himself shall be a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God. So what he's saying is, um, you're going to be like a God to him. You're going to be my representative. 
you're going to give my message, Moses, to Aaron. And Aaron will be like a prophet speaking to Pharaoh. He's not saying, uh, Moses, I'm making you a god. But see, but what I'm trying to show is he uses this, and I can point to other passages. He's using that expression, God, as someone who stands in God's place and speaks for God. In Psalms, God, the, the leadership who should have been speaking for God, were taking advantage of their position and abusing the people. But so, so Jesus says, well, back again, back in, in, in John 10, 34, Jesus answered and said, Is it not written in your law, you are gods? Now verse 35. If he, God, called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I am the Son of God? Now, I have to admit, this is one of those passages that's kind of hard for us to think through. But he's talking to all these rabbinic scholars. And he's kind of speaking to them in their way of understanding. And he's saying, and, he, and he's, he's kind of finely arguing his point. You, you're, you're upset that I, used the, that I said I'm the son of God? God in his words spoke to human leaders and called them gods. And so he says, if... Um, and, and, and that's really, you could translate that since. Since God called men gods who were teachers and judges of God's word, how could it be wrong for Jesus to say he is the son of God? That, that's just called an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you can call these guys over here God, and God called them that, how can it be wrong if I call myself son of God? Where, you know, so he's kind of making a legal argument here. You know, you want to bring legal charges? It's not going to hold up if you're based on the words. They, notice he said they are recipients of God's word, those ones in Psalm 82. You know, if you read your Old Testament, you remember how often you'll read, and the word of God came to Noah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, whoever. You never see that in the Gospels of Jesus. The word of God came to Jesus. It never says that because he's not a prophet like any other man. He is the word of God and he speaks God's word as, 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 as commissioned by the Father. And so he says, so if God could call those men gods, that's right there in your Bible, How can, he not, how can I not call myself son of God when he says, he whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? What does that mean, sent into the world? He's speaking of his heavenly, that he came from heaven. He's the eternal God sent into the world. In other words, I came sent by God from heaven. These are guys, just regular guys. If, they, if the Bible calls them gods, how is it wrong for me to call myself son of God? So he's making a very carefully argued theological, biblical point to say, if you're going to judge me on the basis of words, look at the law. Look at how that word God is used. If he can call them gods, and I am much more than they are. They're appointed by God and recipients of God's word. I am, I'm come from heaven, sent by God. 
how much more can I be called God? So, notice, so some people read this and say, so Jesus is saying he's not really God. No, no, no. He's claiming to be God, and that's his whole point. They're not gods, and God calls them gods. In other words, that means the term means something different. He is God. He's saying, I'm different from them. I am sent from heaven. He always talks about, I came into the world. He's, div- he's divine. He's from heaven. I am before Abraham was. So no, he's not denying his deity. He's just, he's showing them, if you're going to judge me on the basis of words, look at your Bible. And that's something I think we should notice. He's, notice what he says. And if it, sa- it says in your law, and the word cannot be broken. It says right there, the word cannot, and the scripture cannot be broken. Sometimes we might, someone might argue, how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know it's reliable? Jesus said it cannot be broken. Now I grant, I've been kind of, it almost seems like I'm splitting hairs. But really Jesus is splitting hairs, so it's okay. But here's the whole point. He's making this whole argument on one word in the book of Psalms. And one word kind of used in an unusual way, less commonly used. But here's the point. He's saying the Bible and every word is of it is God's absolute truth. Again, some people might say, you know, can I, can I believe? Well, the Old Testament especially. That's, okay, I'll, I'll go with the Gospels or I'll go with the New Testament. Jesus said every word of the Old Testament, none of it can be broken. It's all true. And when I think of that, I think of what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.18. Remember he said, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will, will pass away from the law. Those words jot and tittle, they don't mean a whole lot to us today, but jot is the, is the Hebrew word yod. It's the smallest Hebrew letter, I should say. And tittle is the smallest part of a Hebrew letter that distinguishes them. What he's saying is, not one letter is wrong. Can I trust my Bible? Jesus says not one word, not one letter can be wrong. Is it hard to understand? Yeah. Is it wrong? No. And if I but if I read this and get a wrong idea, the problem is the reader, not the text. But so but so here's an important passage that shows you that Jesus shows the, his, the authority of the scripture. And I, that's a struggle because one, that's contrary to our culture, but even men, in many a church and many of our lives, we start drifting and saying, well, the Bible, you know, it's, it's not really relevant. Jesus thinks it is. Jesus thinks it's authoritative. Jesus thinks it can't be wrong down to the very word of a passage you probably didn't even know was there before this morning. I mean, you may have read it in your daily readings or something, but he can take one word out of one psalm and build an argument because it can't be broken. So I think we need to learn from his example. Well, let's move on.
So Jesus has had this encounter. They're bringing a legal accusation of blasphemy because of the word God. And he gives them a legal answer. Wait a minute. Read your own law. The word gods is used of human teachers. I'm much more than they are. But then verse uh, 39 to 42, we see how it kind of brings a conclusion to this encounter. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. So notice they didn't continue the argument. It says they sought to seize him instead of throwing stones. I think at this point they're saying, let's just go ahead and arrest him. But they're not here. These, and again, these are the scholars that teach in the temple. These are the top university professors, if you will. And, and he has just silenced them. So it kind of reminds you that, you know, the, the pastor that, uh, you know, put a note in his, in, his, in his sermon notes. He realized he was getting to a point in his text that was kind of, he, kind of a weak argument. And so in the margin, he said, shout and hit pulpit. <laughs> you know, if, you can't, if the argument, you know, throw out some emotion, get, get excited here. What, what Jesus, uh, they, they, they couldn't argue with Jesus. So let's just arrest him. Let's, let's just, let's go, let's go to the violence approach. Let's answer him with, let's grab him. And it says that uh, he escaped out of their hand. He got out of their hand. Um, there's some question. Did... Um, did he, was that a miraculous escape, or did he just kind of, you know, remember they said that it all started with them surrounding him. Did he, was it just a miraculous thing, or we're not told directly, but one way or another, by God's providential, it wasn't God's time for him to be arrested, and so he escaped. But we see that no amount of arguing or evidence could convince them. And that's a problem. That shows you what unbelief is. It's, it's, it's no matter how much you can, you, can, you can argue and explain and try to persuade, you might use brilliant words, you might te- use tearful words. It's, it's a matter of heart. No matter how much exposure there is, it's a heart issue. It reminds me of this uh, account from uh, uh, an evangelist uh, in India. His name was Sadhu Sundar Singh. Singh, you can tell he was raised in a Sikh family, but he, he came to faith in Christ. And he says this, While sitting on the bank of a river one day, I picked up a solid round stone from the water. So he's sitting by a river, there's a round stone, picks it up, and I broke it open. It was perfectly dry inside, in spite of the fact it had been immersed in water for centuries. He said, the same is true of many people in the Western world. For centuries, they've been surrounded by Christianity. They live immersed in the waters of its benefits, and yet it has not penetrated their hearts. They do not love it. The fault is not in Christianity, but in men's hearts which have been hardened by materialism and intellectualism. So that's kind of a good illustration. You could be totally immersed in the Christian culture. And still the heart is as dry and hard as the inside of a rock in a stream. The problem is not the stream. The water is wet. Is, is our heart open to God's word? These critics had already decided against Jesus 
They'd already said anyone who believes in Jesus is to be expelled from the synagogue. Their, heart, their unbelief was hardened. So verse 40, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. So Jesus left the area. Uh, it's not that he's afraid of being arrested or dying. He's not. That's why he came. It's just not the Lord's time. And so it says he goes back, if you will, to where it all began. To where John baptized him by the river Jordan. Literally across the Jordan. So that would be into the region called Perea. And again, I'll show you that on a map. And I'll show you um, some pictures and video of that tonight. Of where that, where that place is. Um, and so he went back there. Uh, where it all began. Where his ministry began some three years earlier. This is December the time of Hanukkah. He comes back to Jerusalem at Passover. Think of Easter. So April. So from December to April, most of that time he's going to be over there in the region of Perea, across the Jordan. It's about 20 miles, as I like to say now, the sparrow flies. I used to say as the crow flies, but crows are unclean in the Old Testament. So as the sparrow flies, it's a straight on the map. If you go, it's uh, 20 miles um, it's now Jerusalem's up at an altitude of about 2,400 feet. This is down at the Jordan River, just by very close to the mouth of the Dead Sea. So it's at a negative 1,200 feet altitude. It's the lowest. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on Earth. So about a 3,600 foot drop. In other words, you don't just go straightly there, but it's 20 miles. I would think two days you could get there. But off he goes and back to the same spot. By the, by the Dead Sea. And it says, Then came many to him and said, John performed no sign, but all things that John spoke about this man were true. This is where John was doing the baptizing, where people were coming to him from Jerusalem, from Judea, from all around Israel, and to hear him preach. But John's not there now. The other Gospels tell us that by this time, John had been arrested, imprisoned, and executed by Herod's son, Herod. So John is gone. But when Jesus comes back to the baptismal site, apparently John's followers are still there. So they've taken up the teaching. And as, as Jesus arrived, notice it says, they came, many came to him. And they said, John performed no sign. But all things that John spoke about this man were true. Notice what they talk about? The miracles again. John, everyone, they all agreed, was a great prophet. But John never once performed a miracle. Most prophets didn't. You know, we think of prophets like Elijah and Elisha. They did. But most of the prophets performed no miracle. They just spoke God's word. And that was John the Baptist. But Jesus performed miracles as evidence of who he was. And so those that came, the John's disciples came around and said, John, whom they loved and admired and believed, performed no sign. But all these things that John spoke about this man were true. And so Jesus, John, what was his message? Repent for the kingdom of, of God is at hand. There's one coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie his shoe. I remember my favorite phrase of all when John was with some of his disciples and, and, he, and John the Baptist saw Jesus. And what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's amazing to me. He didn't say, behold, the king. 
He didn't see, behold, the conqueror. He said, behold, the lamb. That's as gentle and weak as you can get who takes away the sin of the world. And how, do they, how does a lamb take away the sin of the world? It dies. It pours out its blood for the sin. And as John the Baptist saw Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, who takes away the sin of the world. Now the disciples are there. What was John's message? Jesus. And when they come and say, John performed no miracles, he did. And everything John said about him is true. They're they're recognizing, here he is. is. Here's the Lord's Messiah. Here's the Lamb of God. And so I think we're supposed to see a difference. There were the religious scholars and leaders in Jerusalem. Their response to Jesus, as hard as a rock that's been in a stream for a thousand years. His word would not penetrate their heart because they wouldn't let him. Then we go 20 miles away, down to the River Jordan. Those who had heard the message of John see in Jesus God's Messiah. And they believe. Notice too, they talk about his miracles his miracles again and again we see that where where jesus remember i mentioned last time when john's disciples came to jesus and said john's in prison he's wondering why he's in prison if you're the messiah and he just said are we are we expecting someone else and what did jesus say he said you spent the day with me go and tell john the miracles you've seen those are the evidence he's the messiah And so when they saw Jesus' miracles, it was the evidence. He's the Messiah because those were the signs of the kingdom. And we're told, as a result, many believed in him there. And I think we're supposed to see what a contrast to the temple. In the temple, they refused. At Jordan, in Jerusalem, let's, let's alliterate that. In Jerusalem, they won't believe. In Jordan... They do believe. How many of them actually believed in full faith? I'm not clear at this point. But remember when we'll see in the first sermon Peter preaches, 3,000 believe. I think it's a lot of these where the seed has been planted already. So as we look at this, what was Jesus pointing to? His miracles. Now sometimes people wonder, well, should we have miracles today? John the Baptist didn't do any miracles, and Jesus said he's the greatest prophet of all time, up to that time. But he didn't do miracles. The miracles were something Jesus did to authenticate. It was God's stamp of authentication. Here he is. Here's the Messiah. His apostles did the miracles because they were the witnesses, the the eyewitnesses. But the miracles don't need to continue. They were given to authenticate the Messiah and his witnesses. And the the ministry of miracles is done. Now, does God answer prayer? Yes. Um, God still is active, but that that thing of, of, of having the ability to do miracles, that was to authenticate who Jesus was and who his followers were. The problem that we see up in Jerusalem is an unwillingness to believe. 
It's been said, when we lack the will to see things as they really are, there is no, nothing so mystifying as the obvious. Let me read that again. When we lack the will to see things as they really are, there's nothing so mystifying as the obvious. Jesus fulfilled all the you know, descriptions of the Messiah, but they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. And I think that makes me think of Romans 1.18 when, when Paul describes the wrath of God is coming upon men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the unbelief that we encounter most of the time, the rejection of Jesus, is a problem of a heart that is unwilling to believe. It's not, it, it's not intellectual. It's a heart that is as hard as a stone. It's as, as, as dead as dead. And it's only by God's grace that, that that heart can see. And that's the work of God's you know, grace that brings that heart to belief. But we see the problem in man is an unwillingness to believe. Unbelief is not intellectual. It's a matter of the will. And what we're seeing is we're progressing in the Gospel of John. Here's, here's, a, here's kind of the last confrontation, if you will. And now Jesus leaves Jerusalem to come back at the time of a sacrifice. But before us, we see Jesus showing who he is. And the issue is, how will you respond? We live in a world that both those responses can be seen. I look at our culture, I see increasing hardness, don't you? Against the gospel. An unwillingness to hear, an unwillingness even to be identified as a Christian. Where many people would say they're a Christian, but then you start probing, they don't believe the Bible. But that's, that's changing. And it's becoming clearer, this distinction that we see right here in this chapter. Those who will not believe and those who will. Those who hear the words and see Jesus in the scripture and trust in him as Savior and those who won't. Of course, the question immediately I have to ask is, where are you on that? You're either, if you will, to use the language here, in Jerusalem or Jordan. You could be very religious and absolutely opposed to Jesus Christ. So it's not church attendance. It's not religiosity. Is Have you surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ? Have you recognized him as Lord and trusted in him as Savior? For those of us who have, I think the people down there couldn't have been happier that Jesus left Jerusalem. They, they had him to themselves. And they got to enjoy seeing and hearing him. So for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, we can rejoice at what he has done in our heart and life and draw near to him. It must have been an incredible time during this place away from the crowd, away from the cities. I'm sure the crowd started gathering, just delighting to hear the Lord. May God give us that delight in him as well each day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of Jesus' resistance to the resistance around him, his willingness to stand for truth. Father, our hearts ache when we think of some we know that are still in that very hardened unbelief, an unwillingness to believe. Father, we pray your mercy and grace for these. And Father, for those of us whose eyes have been opened, we thank you for your mercy and grace toward us. 
We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, and we confess him as our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our God, and we rejoice in him. We pray this in Jesus' name.